Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friends. Team Buck, great to have you here. A lot to talk to you about today. Been quite a week and a pretty interesting day as well in the news cycle a little bit of a preview of what we can expect to hit over the course of the show. Uh, we will discuss the goings-on in the White House and this administration, which I didn't really spend much time on yesterday. We'll also uh, do more analysis, actual analysis of Afghanistan and what's going on there than I think you'll get in almost any other place today from what I've seen and read uh, in the media. A lot of big bomb goes boom today from people on TV supposedly analyzing uh, the strike in uh, Nangar province in eastern Afghanistan. I'm, I'm amazed at what passes for counterinsurgency expertise, national security background, b- basic understanding of of how the military functions. They'll just put people on TV like, yeah, this bomb was real. It was really big. This bomb was big. Big bomb goes boom. Thanks for that. Um, yes, the very big bomb does, in fact, go boom. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about Afghanistan. And as is my my mandate, my goal here every day in the Freedom Hut, uh, if you give me your time to speak about Afghanistan, to uh, have a conversation about Afghanistan today, uh, you will know more, I think, from this show than, well, any other news source that I've seen or heard uh, in the last 48 hours. So that's a promise that I can make to you. Um, I know Afghanistan well. It's an issue I worked on uh, during my time at the agency, and uh, we will get into it. We will get into it. Um, I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, as uh, some of you, I'm sure many of you know, because I've brought it up before here on the air so uh oh and then we'll get into some other stuff maybe we'll talk about that (laughs) there's a part of me that feels bad when you see one of these student editorials somewhere because you see i wrote some student editorials way back in the day at amherst college that were fine but we we didn't really put it was a paper then it wasn't really online now it's online when these kids write or they're not kids they're adults they're 18 and 18 and up uh, but these college students write something, and it's there on the internet. It's on the interwebs for all to see. And if you write something supremely stupid, uh, it it can make the rounds. And a Wellesley editorial on free speech today, no less, has has been made. I think they shut it down so that outsiders can't read it anymore. It's now an intranet only thing, meaning internal to Wellesley. Uh, I've never been to Wellesley, but I have some experience at the women's colleges. I know it sounds like I've got good stories, right? Experience at the women's colleges. I've got good stories, but not necessarily, I think, what one would imagine from being a college student, uh, college guy who's going over to hang out at the women's colleges. It's interesting stuff over there. Maybe third hour today we'll get into some more of that. Um, but I wanted to start with uh, some some thoughts on everything going on in the White House right now. 
it's uh, it's Friday, so we're, we're going to go in and out of a very, uh, what's the, in- intricate and in-depth analysis to also just, here's what I'm feeling. And so this is more of a here's what I'm feeling moment. Uh, not, not an incredible week for the administration, uh, that's putting it mildly. I'm starting to have some concerns. And as I mentioned before, a mandate that I have that I impose on myself and that I think many of you hold me to based on the emails I get from you and uh, Facebook messages, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, if you're listening, um, is that I uh, will not only tell you, I I do a ton of information, uh, a ton of analysis and research to bring you the best information I can every day, but also that I will at at all times uh, try to be honest with you. I, I had a conversation recently, actually, with a friend in media and I, I posed a question that I that I think is increasingly provocative in the Trump era on the right um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And the question was, is is the truth valued? Um, do people really want the truth or do and is truth popular? Maybe even a better way to say is the truth popular? I think the answer to that is often, no, I think that with the Trump administration coming into office right now, we have some holdover effects of the dynamic from the primary that have continued on into the president, I mean, not just the primary, sorry, and the general that have continued on into the presidency. And that's problematic for me. But what do I mean by is truth popular? Um, there are some individuals um in fact, there are many of them, so I'm really not speaking of it. For those of you who think that I may be referring to any one individual, I am not. This is a, a broad a broad trend in media on the right now. I'm talking about conservative media. There are, uh, there are some people that I think were true believers all along in Trumpism, and they saw this as a necessary corrective, and they thought that this was um, necessary as well for the, the, just the purpose of not allowing Hillary and the Democrats to be in power and continue on with Obama's eight years. Uh, and, and they, in good faith the entire time, were willing to defend pretty much everything that Trump did and said. Uh, there were some that would occasionally waver a little bit, but I, I recall even being at, at CNN um, during the campaign and some of the Trump surrogates would defend things that Trump said that within a day or two or maybe a week or a month, Trump himself would would walk back on or would change or the campaign would alter. So it was clear that there was a there was a uh, a policy in place for for some people who were given a platform to speak, to speak to all of you, to speak to the American people and to speak particularly to uh, conservatives and Republicans. And that was that Trump always Trump is right. Trump is the way to go. In the context of the general election, in the context of the primary, even before that, although less so for me, and I've been open with all of you about this, I supported Ted Cruz, although I also uh, thought that Marco Rubio was an excellent candidate. I found John Kasich to be uh, unacceptable, maybe too strong, but not my guy, I'll say that. And some of the other candidates I I have respect for, but I didn't think they they were really up for the job, um, and there were there were a lot, you know, what's this, uh, Pataki, I mean, there were a lot, right? Okay, so, and I, I know it's Friday, by the way, we're going to do so much on Afghanistan, you'll be like, oh gosh, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been inundated uh, with information today, we'll get there, but I'm 
just trying to bring you into my mindset here because I think this is important. It's important if I'm going to talk to you about all the things happening in the political world on a daily basis and you give me the honor of your time that you know exactly where I'm coming from. This is my objection, by the way, to the way the way many in the media portray themselves as right down the middle or just journalists just presenting the facts and they're liars. Whether they know they're lying or not, what they're saying is an untruth. Uh, most of the time, a vast majority of the time, people who claim to be journalists with no bias or opinion are either self-deluding or trying to fool all the rest of us. But the Trump all the time, Trump always right, I'm for Trump up until the presidency. I can understand why people would do that with good intention, meaning they thought they just knew that they were up against this Hillary Democrat machine and it was going to be incredibly uh, difficult. It was an uphill climb to beat Hillary, given the media, even though she was a terrible candidate. It's a discussion we can get into another time. But since Trump has become president, I've been hoping that there would be more of a willingness to speak honestly within the party, within the family, within conservatism and constitutionalism, within the GOP, however you want to define it, um, and not feel like Anyone who breaks with the Trumpian orthodoxy is going to get uh, hammered by those that agree with that person on 80 or 90 percent of the stuff that's out there. And what I think is fascinating to see play out right now is that the Trumpian orthodoxy, I don't know what that is. And I would offer that nobody really knows what that is, including Trump at this point. There is a lot of policy mobility which is a polite way of saying, perhaps an overly genteel way of saying, stuff is in flux. It's changing a lot. We have advisors coming and going, senior members of the government coming and going. We have now all these reports that Bannon might be leaving. And I would hope that those people in the movement, conservatism, those who have big microphones or big TV platforms or websites, you know, columns, whatever it may be, who have been Trump, Trump, Trump all the way, would be more willing now, because we're talking about the presidency and its early stages when you can have a greater influence. And I think this president is particularly open to the influences of opinion from those who have good intentions, want to see him succeed, are on the GOP and therefore are on Trump's team, but aren't willing to just go along with everything all the time. There are a lot of people in this business who are really disingenuous and they talk down uh, to their audiences, whether from TV or from radio or in their writing, uh, because they just they know that Trump is the populist Republican candidate. And therefore, populism comes from, of course, or the, the root of the word is the same as popularity. It's popular. It's viewers. It's clicks. It's listeners. It's money. It's prestige. It's access. Uh, I have not yet seen the shift that I would expect, given some of the twists and turns that this administration has already made, of those who are in positions to have influence. And we know that there are those who can influence the administration uh, because Trump talks about who he listens to and watches and sees and things to try and steer him in a direction that is in line with what the promises were that the uh, campaign made that President Trump made when he was on the campaign. I think this is a, a way of saying to all of you, uh, be prepared for it, because there will be a shift coming, I think, 
Uh, the tide will turn. You're going to see people who have been one big walking MAGA, Make America Great Again ad start to want to walk back to being all about the Constitution and conservatism and, you know, oh, let's talk more about the Tea Party. And, and it will happen as there's a recognition, if there is a recognition, and I don't know if this will be the case. And I'm not, I know it's Friday. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I still think there's a lot of great stuff that Trump can do. And all of this conversation needs to be put in the context of every single day. I, I think to myself, Thank God Hillary's not president. <laughs> so that's every day. So understand that, that I don't have to look at all those Democrats on TV lecturing us about all this other stuff and all the, you know, the, the, all their lies, what they think are backed by science or by statistics, and they're not, whether it's equal pay or I mean, I don't think for one second I am not, I am ungrateful for the fact that we are spared that reality because I am very grateful. I think it's fantastic. I almost couldn't believe it the day after the election. Um, but there are some troubling signs right now. Not big stuff. Not, oh, gosh, what's going to happen to us all now? I'm not, never mind. We'll talk about North Korea and the, some of the irresponsible headlines, I think, about how imminent a possible conflict with North Korea may be. I think people are in, a, in an otherwise slow news cycle are, are just playing a little, a little fast and loose with what is probable and what is reality. But. Uh, but there are some problems here with the administration not executing on the plan right now. It's a little slow. It's a little problematic. And some of these people that we were told, Trump has always said, I get the best people. You know, I surround myself with the best people. In some cases he had. In some cases he clearly has not. And in some cases, family, for, family comes first is obviously the operative principle. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to be honest about it. We need to be willing to talk about that and also the rise of some of these advisors like uh, Cohn and, and, and Bannon perhaps being on the way out and Jared Kushner as among the most powerful people in the United States government right now with zero government experience and never having been elected to anything. We need to, keep, we need to watch these things and have a willingness on the right to speak about it based on what our expectations would have been even in a pre Trumpian error for how a Republican administration should function. I am seeing some people out there that have a lot of sway and they they just they like their popularity and their clout a little too much and are unwilling, even in the most obvious moments and obvious fashion, to say, hold on, Trump needs to get we need to get a little back on track here. Or no, that wasn't a particularly good decision. Or why do we have this? alternative uh, from the mainstream media. Why do we have conservative media, if not to be able to, one, inform those of us who have are like-minded and have the, the same principles, but also to be able to exert some influence on an administration that does seem in need of some ideological cohesion right now. It is lacking. Doesn't mean it's gone forever. Doesn't mean it's a big problem. Doesn't mean I'm about to start saying, oh, you know, maybe we should give Elizabeth Warren a, a chance. No, no, no. I'm just saying... They need to focus in, and I don't like all this, oh, well, everything Trump does is awesome, it's 4D chess. No, everything he does is not 4D chess, and people that are claiming that, it, that that's the case, especially those who have plenty of money and plenty of access and everything else, and they're not in danger of losing their jobs for speaking out or whatever, some of them need to man up a little bit. We are so proud of our military, and it was another successful 
event. Did you authorize it, sir? Uh, everybody knows exactly what happened. So, and what I do is I authorize my military. We have the greatest military in the world, and they've done a job as usual. So, we have given them total authorization, and that's what they're doing. And frankly, that's why they've been so successful lately. If you look at what's happened over the last eight weeks and compare that really to what's happened over the last eight years, you'll see there's a tremendous difference, tremendous difference. So we have incredible leaders in the military, and we have incredible military, and we are very proud of them. And this was another very, very successful mission. The, the real positive, um, which the president addressed himself in that uh, soundbite there, uh, is that the Trump administration is willing to enforce red lines, is willing to um, act, and won't just take things lying down. That That is a benefit, because for eight years under the Obama administration, it was clear that President Obama was always taking a, well, it's not that big a deal, we shouldn't stir up trouble, I don't want to get involved in something, let's just back off. That was his go to that was the that you know his 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 neutral position on foreign policy was really let them push against america and don't do anything in response them being anybody that opposes our interests really anywhere in the world trump is changing that tone and that perception which has uh, profound consequences i think going forward we haven't really felt them all that much just yet but it will begin to play out in the hotspots, war zones, and important areas of U.S. foreign policy and conflict all over the world. So that is all very important. In Afghanistan specifically, though, I have to say, there is a bit more of a celebratory note that I'm seeing in the media. First of all, I'm shocked to see so many people in the media, including Democrats and and pro-Hillary, pro-Obama, pro-Elizabeth Warren leftists out there who are just like, oh, this bomb was so big. Do you see that we just dropped this huge bomb? This is just such a big bomb. Okay, it's it's a large bomb that was used for the purpose that it was developed, which is to destroy a cave complex or underground bunkers. And it's similar, and I'm sure some of you listening have probably got some Air Force uh, guys and gals listening right now. You know a lot more about the specifics of how the bomb functions than I do, but it's Similar to a daisy cutter, just like it's like a really big daisy cutter, which has been around uh, since Vietnam era. So the bomb is a symbol, sure, and it took out, it looks like, dozens of ISIS fighters. A great thing. But I'm here to tell you, as somebody who has spent time in Afghanistan, knows the country, and has a very good sense of what the military strategy has been for many years now, uh, the situation there is not good, my friends. Uh, we are in a very tough spot in Afghanistan right now, and we need to start asking some hard questions. This is what I mean. Now it's time to push the administration in the right direction. It's not time to sit around and just talk about MAGA and look at my MAGA hat and everything. I mean, we can do that too sometimes. But if we're going to talk about matters of national security and war, we need to get very serious about what is happening right now in Afghanistan. And one bomb is not significant. Let's talk about what is. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call 
the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. It's team, I almost forgot. It's freestyle. I mean, it's freestyle Friday, which also means it is action movie quote Friday. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Move to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. That's right. Bring it. 844-900-2825. If you dare. See what you got against the action movie quote Friday master, which would be me. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Uh, Walter in Florida on WMXC. Good to have you, Walter. Hey, hey, man. Just a couple of things. I'm a little befuddled at your monologue, and I don't mean to be dense, but it seems to me that what the president has, has had to deal with is uh, an undermining of everything he started from. And even with all that, I think he's, his administrative uh, changes with the administrative – I mean, our country's run very much right now. About 6% of everything's done through administrative law, which – a finer way of saying is that the department heads in the different departments across the executive control much of what should be done through the legislature. And he's done a great job of that. Uh, Secondly, he's put a Supreme in place that is arguably going to give us 30 years of conservative constitutional law. And the way he's played it, he's actually allowed probably Kennedy to bow out in the next year or so and have another strong conservative and to me if nothing else happens this year that that's a win that we needed as a country going forward it's, it's almost immeasurable now okay th- th- this see this is very interesting i think this is really instructive i don't disagree with anything you've said in fact i've said similar things on this program but i get the sense from the from the way you opened up your discussion with me here that you think I'm being unfair to the president by saying that I just want to make sure that people who have voice with the president are willing to voice criticism within the confines of the party or within uh, or based on the premise that they're trying to make things better and trying to push the president in the right direction and not just cheer on everything that he says. What part of that do you not? It seems like you don't like that. Why is that? Why is that a problem? I I I don't. Well, I, I don't know that. It, I think probably the track that you took more more than the specifics. I think the general, at least what I felt, was the general displeasure of. I, I'm guessing it's mostly probably on two fronts, legislatively and militarily. Since you have yes, you're you're you're, you're correct in that. Those are the places where I have some concern right now. Yeah, but I, I for me personally, I think the actions that have been taken are. A good beginning of of establishing and rebuilding a reputation around the world that is feckless and laughable over the last eight years, and I don't think that you can measure the future of his actions in the military other than to say he's, he's appointed three amazing men to positions who have strong military backgrounds. I think that is a clear message of what kind of a commander chief he's going to be. But I think his flexibility is a strength. Right? Okay, right. But so I'm about to talk to you about Afghanistan, uh, for example, as soon as we're, we're done here with your call. Uh, is the Trump administration going to surge troops in Afghanistan, or is the Trump administration going to largely draw down in Afghanistan? 
I, I, I have no I have no idea. I, I don't think yeah, the Trump no. administration really has an idea either. I think that's a discussion that's worth. I mean, while while we're all talking about the bombing in eastern Afghanistan that was useful for the purpose of going after ISIS militants and it was a good move, uh, the country is being overrun by the Taliban. That's what that is what is actually happening there. So well, so we so we should have we should have a real talk about that, right? We have we have eighty eight hundred U.S. troops in Afghanistan in harm's way. We just lost a U.S. special forces soldier the other day, and we have an administration that. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying we don't know. But it's not enough to just say whatever no. they do is good. And I sense that that's no, going I on. I think you're right. Okay. I well, see, th- right. But see, this is, I, I, I sense and I, I try to be fair-minded about this, that with a lot of those who, like me, voted for Trump, supported Trump, support him to this day, there's still a sense of, of absolutism in everything that Trump does. And I think that could be not just, uh, not the best way forward for the Republican Party and, and honestly for the country. I don't even think it's the best way forward for the administration. I think people being honest right. with what they like and don't like, and and I do not like the suppression of Trump dissent. And I'm not saying you're doing this, but this is what I was trying to get at, the, the, the suppression of any Republican dissent by people suggesting that anyone who disagrees with Trump on some issue or another is a sellout or is doing Hillary's work, you know, during the during the general, I was with those. I, I, I was with them on that. I'm like, you, you got to be Trump. You got to go with Trump. I voted for Trump. I said I would beforehand. I pulled the lever for him. I talked about it the day after, uh, and I've been supporting him ever since. But there are some things that I see happening that I can't say. I nec- one, I, I'm not sure where he's going, and two. It's not clear to me that they're moving in the right direction, and that is concerning to me. Um, you know, tr- well, Trump it, Trump I, got a lot of a, a lot of credit for a for, for foreign policy actions that are what you would expect from other Republican administrations previously, right? That that's that's pretty standard. Right. Is that really what he promised us when he was running? Is that there would be, uh, you know, that there would be a humanitarian a humanitarian strike uh, in in Syria, I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. I'm just saying we need to keep an eye on what's happening here because it seems like the administration is shifting around on different issues, and this is the time to have an open discussion about it and not take a uh, a tunnel vision view of everything Trump does is right because he's Trump. And I, that's I'm uncomfortable with that. I would be uncomfortable with that no matter who the president was. That's not that's not me either. I, I'm like you. I started with uh, Senator from Texas. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's slowly. Move slowly the other way, but I, I think I think I hear what you're saying, and I think part of our challenge, and mine is too, is there such a bunch of half truths and innuendo that comes every day at us, and you may have better contacts obviously than I do, but I don't know how one can ever trust anything most of the mainstream media, and I, I don't say that. I mean, I, I'm a generation that lived with three networks for most of my life, and uh, it pains me to think I can't trust anything that they. Oh yeah, it, it's an open it's an open propaganda war, and I think if, if you listen to the show, you're you're very clear on where I stand on that. It, it is it is a propaganda war. That that is what the media has become. Uh, it is really in the it is really obvious now. I don't think it's something that anyone can really. Um, uh, you know, it's not something that is that is easy to argue the alternative at this point. So, you know, we'll see. I just on the foreign policy front, Afghanistan in particular, which is really what was making me think about this. 
I'm not clear on what the administration's going to do. I know they, I think they're, uh, I think General, I think General McMaster is now tasked with doing an Afghan, uh, Afghanistan review, which is a good thing, but things are not going well there. Maybe as I get into Afghanistan, you'll see more about, uh, you'll get a sense of why I have concerns and want to speak about this other than just saying, yeah, of course, Gorsuch, that was huge. Uh, I mean, we could go online. There have been some excellent things that the administration has already accomplished. On the so- on the advisor side, it does seem like there have been some less than optimal choices, and they're changing those. Okay, you know, I'm not expecting perfection. It's I, early. I, I hear what you're saying. I think I, I heard one special forces uh, officer that's retired now say today that that set of, of uh, tunnels are the same ones that that we allowed. Uh, Lon to skate through, and that he was, for one, had knew for eight years while he was active that the, everybody knew about that system. And our past president did absolutely nothing to close down that tunnel. And that it really was, it's much like the Mexican tunnels that we have coming in at our border from the drug kings. You know, it was how they got all their weapons, they got uh, all kinds of stuff through there for supplies. And if, if we have to bomb that entire mountainside into the ground to stop those transports, I think that that is a certainly a good start. And that's what seems to be that, that is at play here. And I it it is. It is. It is also, uh, having having spent some time in country, I can tell you it's a very big country. There are a lot of tunnels. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of places. Oh, yeah. You know, this is – so, so this is not – this is not a, let, let me actually – and I thank you very much for your call, Walter. Let, let me get into a bit of uh, – of what I wanted to talk about on Afghanistan specifically. So so here's what's going on. You've got the media all talking about how um, Afghanistan, l- look at what Trump has done. It's sending a message to North Korea. By the way, there was a, quite an interesting response last night to that NBC News story that I read to you. And you'll recall, those of you who are listening to the show, that I was kind of like, this is really where the the NBC News story, this is NB, not MSNBC, this is NBC, NBC, which is the, it's really kind of the same thing, but NBC is supposed to be a little more centrist than normal. Uh, and they were saying that the, the U.S. was considering a first strike, a first strike uh, in North Korea. And I was like, what? If they think they're going to uh, engage in, in a nuclear test, it's like, we're not going to do a first strike. That's, that's crazy. Uh, they've done a bunch of these tests. Why would we do a first strike now? And I, I saw the, the there was backlash to this last night. People were saying, well, that's just, they're, they're, going, they're way off. Whoever they're ta- whatever sources they're using there are way off. But on uh, on Afghanistan... Uh, right now, we're talking about this, uh, this cave complex and dropping this, what is it, 23,000-pound bomb on it. And it's all, as I said, there would be last night. There are a lot of diagrams of bombs and people talking about the different bombs. Uh, here's the reality of what's going on in Afghanistan. The, the Islamic State is a, is a, small, uh, a small enemy body that we have to worry about right now, a small part of the enemy that we have to worry about. The Taliban is the real problem. And the Taliban in Afghanistan, here we are now 16 years into this war. And a and another point that this also goes to the media propaganda war angle that people need to know and do not know, or is, this is never talked about, is that a, a clear majority, I think it's close to 70 percent of U.S. casualties in Afghanistan occurred while Obama was the commander in chief. So there was this surge in Afghanistan. I believe it was done for political reasons by the previous administration. We're going to go hard into Afghanistan. We're going to pull out in Iraq. And uh, they did that. And as we saw, Iraq, within short order, had the Islamic State come screaming in from Syria and grab Mosul. And at one point, almost a third of Iraq was in Islamic State hands. 
And they surged and then withdrew. And he announced, Obama announced the surge and withdrawal at roughly the, roughly the same time. So he's saying, we're going to give, we're going to put more troops in, but then we're going to draw down by this date. And here we are now, up from a high of, of over 100,000 troops. Now we're down to 8,800. And the, uh, the story in Afghanistan right now is a very uh, discouraging one. Um, the story in Afghanistan is that the Taliban, and this is according to Long War Journal, and we'll have one of the uh, edit, we'll have the editor of the Long War uh, Journal joining us in just a little bit here. The Taliban claims that it controls 34 districts, it contests 167 districts, um, and has a significant presence in another 52 districts. Well, there's only a few hundred districts in all of all of Afghanistan, um, and. They are in there from a pure terrain perspective. The Taliban are in their strongest position since 2001 right now. That's what it would seem. I know you say, Buck, that's the Taliban claim. Well, the the analysis that uh, has been done on our side and and the open source by different organizations that track this is pretty close to what the Taliban says that they currently have. So we're 16 years into this war, and we have 88 well, whatever it is, about 8,000, close to 9,000 U.S. troops officially in country and another 6,000 or so coalition allied troops in country. And the Afghan National Security Forces are getting hit hard. They are, they are depleted. The fighting season is looking like it'll be, which the fighting season really matters there because the mountain passes and the snow and ability to travel is dramatically restricted in the winter. So there really is a fighting season. We are entering it right now. The fighting season means that there could be uh, moves on major cities. So major cities, and Af- I mean, major cities by Afghan standards. Oh, I've got to go into a break here, team, um, and we'll be right back and we'll continue this. Sorry, I went a little long. Talking Afghanistan, and uh, we'll get into some other stuff in a bit, but uh, stay with me. I don't know if this sends a message. Uh, it doesn't make any difference if it does or not. North Korea is a problem. The problem will be taken care of. I will say this. I think uh, China has uh, really been working very hard. Uh, I have really gotten to like and respect, as you know, President Xi. He's a very special man, so we'll see how it goes. I think he's going to try very hard. Trump trying to enlist uh, the help of China to deal with uh, North Korea is wise. Um, It's probably, other than cutting off additional financing for uh, North Korea and trying to cut off North Korea from the international banking system even more than it already is, China is one of the best points of leverage. I know they have agreed to suspend coal shipments to North Korea for a while, um, which which will, will sting, I'm sure, the North Korean economy. Of course, one of the problems you have here is anytime you do anything to punish the regime in North Korea, you really end up punishing the people um, more than anyone else. And you can even get into a, a pretty rigorous discussion as to whether sanctions in a case like North Korea's Uh, aren't counterproductive, you're not going to bring about a revolution in a totalitarian police state by denying certain things uh, to the population. Uh, In fact, sanctions have a a history in a number of cases. Russia is a a good instance of bringing people more into the arms of the regime 
because of the sense of sh- uh, shared suffering. And just think about the propaganda. It's so easy to say, well, look at those Americans and their international allies. They are keeping food. Uh, they're taking food out of the mouths of, you know, of, of children in order to pursue their vendetta against us. So I, I think that Trump did a, uh, did a is doing the right thing with regard to China. Um, Russia is the big story, other than North Korea this week, on the foreign policy front. And of course, I, by the way, I haven't mentioned, and I should note this. I saw that piece in the Guardian that says that British, or, or I think it was that said that there was outside U.S. intelligence collection that got. I'm just I, there's only so many of these anonymous, uh, unsourced stories that I can read that start this feverish news cycle again about Trump and all the all oh, Trump and Russia collusion before I, I want to turn around and say, uh, what are we what am I even people asking about this? What do you think? I, I, I don't know. They keep running these stories. And then in two weeks, are they going to stand behind the story? Probably not. This all goes to what I was saying before. It is a it is a propaganda war, and it feels increasingly like some of these uh, major outlets out there just are are spewing things that they can ethically in their minds get away with reporting, even though they know they're not going to stand be- and more and stand behind it. And more of this Trump Russia collusion stuff, I feel like it just fits into that category. It's why I didn't talk about it yesterday. And I, I want to sit here and talk. You know, I just paid my taxes. I want to talk about that. Uh, I want to see tax reform from this administration. I want to see a lot of things and having to spend more time. Oh, there's look at Carter Page or there's more uh, unsourced allegations or anonymously sourced allegations about how Trump is, uh, you know, was colluding with the right. I'm just just give me some evidence. I I want actual evidence. I want someone who will speak up on the record and then I'll talk more about that. But we'll get back to Afghanistan here in just a second. Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We're joined by Bill Roggio. He is the editor of uh, the Long War Journal, which is part of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And Bill is a senior fellow at FDD. Bill, thanks so much for calling in. Thanks, Buck. It's a pleasure. Thank uh, you. So let's get into this, because right now a lot of people are talking about Afghanistan because of the the Moab drop. Uh, It's the first time I've seen a lot of media coverage of Afghanistan in a long time. Uh, The situation there is not good. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And look, there's there's a lot of discussion, and and, and I think— it's fine. I mean, look, the, the, this weapon, uh, there's this sort of uh, uh, overemphasis on what we use as, as weapons of war, whether they're drones or, or new fighter planes or the Moab. But to me, someone who watches and reports on Afghanistan regularly, um, it's really become my main beat over the last several years, uh, along with Pakistan. Um, it's, it's that forgotten war. So anything that draws attention to Afghanistan and the situation there and look i'm not going to mince words we're losing in afghanistan the taliban controls more territory today than they have at any time since the since after 9-11 and if it takes dropping a moab on the islamic state which didn't even exist when this war started and they're gaining a foothold in afghanistan that just tells you how bad things are there 
or it just gives you a, a glimpse, actually, of how things ban are. Yeah, well, this is this is what I was starting off the show today thinking about. We have so much media coverage of this of this uh, dropping of this bomb and a lot of talking about the, the messaging that comes from this. It sends a message, people say, to North Korea, and it sends a message that Trump administration is different. That is all true, and that is all well and good from my perspective. However, we are, and I agree with you, losing the war in Afghanistan, where we still have over 8,000 troops and a commitment to help the Afghan people maintain durable stability, and it's not going well. And, and this is now, uh, I think, needs to be much more of a public discussion. But l- let's get into the numbers of it. You know, where are things going particularly badly? I, I looked at a map that uh, you guys have at the fa- at uh, Long War Journal, and a lot of the places where I've seen uh, where where you see uh, Taliban control or, or highly high levels of Taliban contested areas. Uh, are in the south, Helmand province, Kandahar. I would have expected that without seeing any maps. Along the AFPAC border, a a number of provinces there. But then you see a surge of contested provinces up through the center of Afghanistan towards Kabul, uh, and even in the northwest of the country, which that is on you. I mean, that's not the typical, oh, it's Taliban fighting season again. That's something different. Taliban fighting season hasn't existed for years. They have been going at it year-round. Ever since the U.S. decided to withdraw forces from Afghanistan. And so, <clears throat> look, and that map that I created is based on what the Taliban claims. But except individually, I track this on my own, and uh, I view that the Taliban's claim is credible, and it might in some cases even be conservative. Uh, the reason why I consider it credible, if you look in, – and you know, you're talking about the, the layout of this map – in one area in, in Kandahar province, which is the, the birthplace of the Taliban, a couple of districts, Zari and Panjway, this is where the Taliban grew, where Mullah Omar established his first mosque and things of that nature. And the Taliban are saying, look, we don't control any territory in these areas, but we're fighting a guerrilla war there. That, you know, the Taliban you know, have every reason to lie about what's happening in these districts, and they're not. And that's why um, when matching it with data that I had – and again, my data was more of incomplete – and with the Taliban, I have to give it a lot of credibility. The U.S. military will tell you, no, no, things are fine. The Taliban only controlled 30 districts. And when you look at the reality of it, the Taliban, there's 400 districts in, in Afghanistan. Think of them as maybe counties or townships here in the United States. Of the 400, the Taliban either control or hotly contest or, or moderately contest uh, well over 200 of them. And in terms of landmass percentage, I know that population density and, and population centers matters a lot more. But do you have some sense of, uh, you know, are, are they in control of roughly a third of the country? Yeah, I would say they control uh, probably a third of the country. And now, look, we got to remember a classic guerrilla warfare will tell you, look, uh, these remote areas, these matter because they allow you to surround. They allow you to, to, to provide bases for your um, for your insurgency. And that's exactly what the Taliban are doing. So while the coalition, while U.S. forces and Afghan uh, forces are saying, oh, we'll just let the Taliban control. They don't matter. There's no population there. The Taliban are like, yep, we'll take them. Then they use those as launch points as their surrounding areas. Last year, they laid siege to six different provincial capitals. or Think of them state capitals here in the United States. And they took Kunduz for a while, right, up in the north, which shocked people. And we had to, we, yeah. the U.S. had to deploy soldiers to help the, help the Afghans take it back. Yes, it happened twice since, two, since uh, 2015 where they entered Kunduz and controlled large areas of the city for well over two weeks. It's The U.S. military um, – look, I served in the military. I love our military. I love our country. But they have not been honest. They have been 
whitewashing what has happened in Afghanistan. U.S. commanders are punching their ticket by telling us how great things are in Afghanistan and how great the Afghans are. They get a nice fat job at another command. And then on their way out the door, they say, well, it wasn't as nice as I thought it was. One and, other uh, part of this that I think doesn't get nearly enough uh, enough attention, and we'll get into the uh, the ISIS angle maybe again in, in a few minutes, but I wanted to move to Russia for a second. I don't think people ever read or hear about the Russian hand in Afghanistan, but there are some very troubling signs uh, about what Russia is up to there. Yeah, so what Russia um, – look, Russia fought its war in Afghanistan and lost, and it lost to the precursors to the Taliban. Uh, some of them, right? Some of them actually are in the Afghan government. But Russia is very concerned about the Islamic State in Afghanistan, uh, particularly along the, it's the borders with its former satellite countries, you know, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, things of that country, countries like that. So what Russia is, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of reporting on the Russian support for the Taliban, but what they've actually done is, is uh, I'm not trying to cover for the Russians here. I'm not a fan of the Russians by any way, shape, or form here. But I think they're they're playing a game where they're trying to arm local groups up in the northern areas in order to, to serve as a bulwark to, to the Islamic State. Because the Islamic State and the Taliban, in many instances, they don't like each other, and they'll even fight each other. Now, up in the north, that's not as big of a problem, and that's where this all gets really, really fuzzy. But um, the Russians, look, I think they're, what they're trying to do is prepare for the collapse of Afghanistan and, and trying to buy off local Taliban actors. This never works, by the way, but that's what they're, they're trying to do. And do we, do we know what the level of support the Russians uh, are, are giving to the Taliban is? I, I've seen some reports that, that make it seem like, yeah, the Russians understand that the, the, the best game in town— that's not the central government that we have been helping with our allies to keep in business for the last 16 years is going to be the Taliban. Yeah, and so they're not operating with the Taliban. They're, from what I could gather on this situation, they're not really operating. They're not cooperating with the Taliban leadership, the central Taliban leadership that operates in the south. They're more dealing with the ones, like I said, up in the north that would impact the border areas. Level of support is small arms. They're not providing things. Game changers like surface-to-air weapons, and they could shoot down our fighters and helicopters. Uh, so you're just you're thinking ammunition, small arms, cash, um, and and perhaps it's possible. I can't can't prove this, but given the way things have worked in this region, there might be some sanctuary on the other side of the border. I'm seeing reports that that uh, that Taliban fighters are getting uh, medical care on, in in former Russian republics. And we know that, of course, to the West, you've got Iran, uh, and the Iranian hand in Afghanistan doesn't get much coverage. Have you seen anything about any Iranian interests or activities going on there? There's a lot of stuff happening in Afghanistan that just flies under the radar. Yes. The Iranians have been supporting uh, local Taliban elements in the West and even the central uh, Taliban leadership for for well over a decade now. It's well-documented. They even it's even thought to have provided a couple of surface to air missiles that shot that are thought to have shot down a British uh, I believe it was a British transport plane a British aircraft this was a decade ago so it gets a little fuzzy when you start going to war for this long it's uh, you know everything starts to blend but um, yeah the Iranians they have a vested interest and a lot of it is due to the drug trade a lot of it is for a payback against the American against us the Americans and so. The Iranians are very adept in establishing local contacts with their with the Quds Force, the IRGC, its, it's uh, uh, Revolutionary Guards, and 
uh, yeah, you know, the Iran, it's not, you know, again, I, I view Iran when you look at the, in the um, sort of the, the constellation of bad actors in the region. I mean, they're going to put them well below Pakistan, for sure. Pakistan is our biggest enemy inside Africa. Yeah, you can't defeat the Taliban without mm-hmm. dealing with what's going on in Pakistan, and we don't really have any way of dealing with what's going on in Pakistan. As you Listen, you hit the nail on the head. I, I testified to this fact in, to Congress last year, last summer. Um, we can do – we can try and build the Afghan army. We can do everything perfectly and without destroying that support from the Pakistanis and the, and the safe havens. It's – the Taliban is, is just sort of on a slow path to victory. And where does that leave us now going forward? And what, what would the – if I had like an ISAF spokesman here – who is going to give the most positive view of progress over the last eight years while Obama was commander-in-chief of what's going on in Afghanistan, what would that sound like? He would tell you that we've built the Afghan military to 700,000 strong. Um, They're fighting on their own. They're conducting operations on their own. They're they're, um, stout on the battlefield. They've made significant strides with Pakistani cooperation. Uh, that's that's a lot of the the nonsense. Yeah, well, that's what I would. That's what they would have. That's what I was hearing when I was in country years ago. So that that hasn't that hasn't really changed. Maybe the numbers are a little bit bigger now than they were then. But that was the idea. That brings me then to what now? Uh, I think uh, McMaster is looking at Afghan policy, Afghanistan policy in review to figure out what the. Do we do we have any sense of what the administration is going to do on Afghanistan? Because my my read on what's going on right now is this is a slow this is a slow bleed out. This is actually much worse than a lot of folks realize. You're listen. Uh, it's it's like you're reading my mind over here. I've been screaming about this uh, to numerous uh, people in government for years, um, but uh, there is no stomach for Afghanistan. Uh, we're going to find out. I really don't. The, the Obama, or I'm sorry, the Trump administration, uh, pre-election and post-election, has been silent. We have heard nothing about what they think to do on Afghanistan. If I had to guess, and I don't think Trump is going to want to lose Afghanistan, um, Obama did a fantastic job in keeping the lid on it just enough to hand it off to his successor. And I would guess that Trump probably will increase the number of troops in Afghanistan in order to to sort of turn back some Taliban advances, it'll it'll merely keep the lid on this problem, but this problem isn't going away without a full – it's not just a commitment of U.S. military forces. We need the full commitment of the State Department, of all the resources of the U.S. government, and then you need the Afghans to – and this is the one that I don't think – I don't know that we could ever get back. I don't think the Afghan people by and large trust us anymore. We have showed – we have proven in my opinion to be feckless. Particularly with the surge in two, that from 2010 to 12, where we put you know a large number of U.S. troops in, we beat back the Taliban in a couple areas, but left them in others, and then we quickly pulled them back. The Afghans they saw they've seen this movie before. It's uh, you know 16 years of, of half measures in Afghanistan, and um, you know if they don't support us at the end of the day, they can't. We can't win. Bill Roggio is editor of the Foundation uh, for Defense of Democracy's Long War Journal, and he's a senior fellow at FDD. Bill, really appreciate you having on uh, having you on. Please come back uh, another time, all right? Anytime, Buck. Thanks. It was Thank a real you. pleasure, and happy Easter to you and your listeners. Thank you. You too, sir. By the way, I just so you guys are listening know, I've never talked to Bill before, never corresponded with Bill before. Everything you heard from him there is just, this is what people who know Afghanistan are saying right now. That I can tell you. Everything else you're hearing is is is, is really not reality. So 
Uh, I still know people on the inside uh, who cover Afghanistan very closely. It's what they will, in whispers, say as well. So this, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, I, I'm keeping it real, everybody. I, I wish I could say that, yay, big bomb goes boom, and that's the end of it. But big, big bomb goes boom in a country that we are losing, a, a we're currently losing the fight in. I mean, it's really the Afghans who are losing the fight, but we're there. We have troops in harm's way. So I'm going to talk about that stuff here. You know, this is not about, uh, you know, who, who can have the most clever, the most clever uh, m- meme tweet about the Moab. Because there's a lot of those out there. So I, this is, you can come here, you hang out with me in the Freedom Hub. We do real stuff. Um, and we also do fun stuff. With that in mind, action movie quote from Rutger in Ohio. Cheer me up a bit. Give me something fun to talk about. What's up, Rutger? Cool, well, cool name, by the way. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's, uh, I think I was named after the, uh, the actor, Rutger Hauer, uh, more or less. All right. So you're named after an action movie star. So you got to have a good quote for me. What is it? Uh, it is, get ready for a surprise. That's from Total Recall. It is the dis- It is the head of the woman that he's pretending to be at the airport. Booyah. Very good. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, uh, I just want to say thank you for the show that you do, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it, Rucker. Thank you for calling in, and thanks for uh, playing uh, Action Movie Code Friday. Team, going to hit a break, finish up on uh, some last thoughts on the national security side. Then we're going to talk politics, and then we'll get into some fun stuff. So stay with me. Get into the Islamic State more with uh, some of the Islamic State in Afghanistan more with with Bill, but we went long on some other issues. So a, a few thoughts on that. ISIS in Afghanistan is a minor player compared to the Taliban, but of course ISIS anywhere is a cause for concern. Uh, They refer to themselves, by the way, as uh, Wilayat Khorasan. Wilayat is uh, the old Ottoman provincial designation. Why would they use the Ottoman provincial designation? Why would the Islamic State in Afghanistan refer to itself as Wilayat Khorasan? Because... It says it's the new caliphate. The last caliphate before the Islamic State was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, that's the way that they have come up with that nomenclature. Khorasan is very interesting, uh, by the way. Khorasan roughly refers to the area of the stands, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. There, there's not, it's not an official area. It's more of a general area. Um, but uh, Khorasan is a prophecy in the Hadith. The Hadith are the attributed sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, not what is in the Quran. The Hadith is a whole separate body of Islamic uh, religious literature that is about the Isnad, which is the Isnad is the chain of uh, the person to, uh, to Muhammad. And so if it's a person, heard a person who knew Muhammad says, right, that's, and that's, that's considered the Isnad. It's like their version of the game Telephone, um, but of course for religious text. And Khorasan is uh, referred to in the Hadith and some of the sayings attributed to the prophet and his immediate followers uh, as a prophecy of, well, the end of the world. Um, it is... The hadiths that deal with Khorasan are the following. If you see the black banners coming from Khorasan, go to them immediately, even if you crawl over ice, because indeed amongst them is the Mahdi. The Mahdi is their 
their Redeemer. Um, the Mahdi is their end-of-the-world figure, their end-of-days uh, figure. And so that's one of—oh, by the way, that's also where the, the black flag that you'll see that jihadists are so fond of, um, it, it is—the it, black flag comes from this hadith having to do with Khorasan. Uh, and there's a book— that's been that that is written the black banners that I've I own and have read I'd recommend to all of you as well um, that's where Khorasan comes from and uh, there's also another there's also another hadith that says that the black flags will come from the east led by mighty men with long hair and beards their surnames are taken from the names of their hometowns and their first names are uh, from a kunya um, so their nom de guerre, a battle name, and, uh, you know, the battle name and the town that they're from. Think about a lot of jihadists, you know, right? It's always Abu something, the engineer, or Abu something, the doctor, or Abu something, the Moroccan, or Abu something, the... That's um, the way that the jihadists take their, their names. Um, but eventually, if you believe this Hadith prophecy from Khorasan, Afghanistan and surrounding area, a an army is supposed to rise up that will go all the way to, of course, Jerusalem. And then once the army reaches Jerusalem, the Mahdi, this messianic figure, will show up. There's a great battle. And then we are at the end of days. That is what a lot of jihadists get into. That's what they believe. And that's why they have these black flags. And that is why they refer to and bin laden when he signed his declaration of war against the united states in 1996 when he was in afghanistan did not sign it from afghanistan he signed it from khorasan so it's important to understand their terminology their ideology and we'll do more of that here he's an ex-cia officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty but i do have a very particular set of skills Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are joined by our friend Caitlin Collins. She is the Daily Caller's White House reporter. Caitlin, great to have you. Thank you very much. All right, the story that I see CNN running with big banners, headlines, ooh, so interesting, uh, is the White House visitor logs. What is going on here? Yeah, the White House has decided to not publicly disclose the visitor logs anymore. Now, this is making news because in 2009, Barack Obama started releasing them, and every, 90, every month they would post who had been at the White House in the last 90 days or so. And the list would say, you know, who it was, who they met with, what time they checked in, what time they checked out. But these logs are known by reporters to be imperfect because if your name was on the list and you were cleared to go to the White House that day, but you didn't go, your name still showed up as you, and it looked like you went. However, people are saying that by doing this, the Trump administration is not being transparent enough to the public. What's the Trump administration's rationale for this? Why are they changing this policy, which, as I understand it, was uh, the Obama administration did publish visitors' logs, but there were ways around it, right? I think that's what happened. 
Yes. The reason the Trump administration says they don't want to publish these is because there are grave national security risks and privacy concerns. Administration officials on background today argued that the president has a right to see people and not publicly disclose it. So they're not going to disclose those. But you're right. The Obama administration did disclose these records, but they maintained the right to take off. You know, if a celebrity came to visit or if they were doing nominations for judges, they could take those people's names off the list so they wouldn't show up. But the list did show some things. I wrote a report uh, last month about how many times the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, had visited the White House during the Obama years. Now, that was news because Mike Flynn came under fire for meeting with him and then not telling Vice President Mike Pence about it. Jeff Sessions also met with him as a senator. So this is when, you know, Democrats were all in a flurry about people meeting with this Russian ambassador. And we just pointed out that he was really welcome at the White House during the Obama years. Donald Trump even went to the length to point this out on his Twitter. He tweeted out this message that Sergey Kislyak had been there at least dozens of times. And, you know, isn't that interesting? But Donald Trump would not have known that he had been there if Barack Obama had not disclosed these visitor logs. So it is a little give and take on both sides. I think Democrats are being a little breathless in their reporting about the visitor logs, but they do point out who is at the White House. And it's nice to know who's visiting the president. I would wonder why the White House wouldn't just take the position that, well, like the previous administration, we'll publish names unless we don't want to publish them, right? So if you're meeting with— It would have been a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a, little, uh, a little sleight of hand here goes a long way. It's clearly what the previous administration did, so I think it's interesting to see that they're making this move. But uh, a lot of interesting moves going on at the White House, which brings me to my next— line of inquiry for you and caitlin's there everybody just so you know in the in the press uh scrum and uh and, and throwing elbows with new york times washington post reporters in the west wing but she's very very polite and ladylike she doesn't throw elbows but you know what i'm saying guys uh and so she's <laughs> she's there on the scene and we have a lot of palace intrigue reporting in the last week or so uh including the ascendance of is it gary Cohn or Khan? i've heard it both Cone. Cone. Okay, Gary Cone. Uh, he is a former Goldman Sachs guy, and I'm I'm reading a lot of analysis that he is now, uh, well, he he is getting closer and closer to the uh, the ultimate circle of Trump power. Yeah, this is a guy that Donald Trump sees as a deal maker, and as we all know, Donald Trump sees himself as a deal maker. So Gary Cohn has just established himself a presence in the White House, and it's clear that he has the president's ear on something. Now, this has caused some ire for his supporters who don't like Gary Cohn. They think he's more of a globalist, and they don't think that, you know, he's nicknamed Carbon Tax uh, Gary in the White House because they think that he is someone who is on the establishment side and not on the Donald Trump side that got Donald Trump in the White House. So it's pretty interesting. That's definitely become a thing. But there is a lot of palace intrigue about Donald Trump's White House, and they don't want us focusing on that. They don't think that's what's important. That's why there was a feud last week with between Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner, and you could tell Donald Trump got frustrated with it and tried to publicly distance himself from Steve Bannon this week. So it is interesting. It seems like almost weekly it's changing who's rising and who's falling in the White House. We've been seeing whispers in the press now for days about the possibility of Bannon's departure, i.e. Bannon getting the boot out of the White House. Uh, do you have any 
any additions to those uh, to those stories, or do you have any of your own personal analyses or inclinations to offer up on this? Well, I don't think it's a good idea to pick a fight with the president's son-in-law, who has you know several jobs in the administration, and I think that may have been what Steve Bannon did. I don't think we're going to see him exit his role at the White House anytime soon, but it's clear that his influence on the president has been diminished a little bit. The president doesn't like to be undermined or seem like he's not the one in charge. And we've had a lot of covers lately about how powerful and how influential Steve Bannon is. He's even been nicknamed President Bannon by the press. That's something Donald Trump doesn't like. And we're seeing him lose that influence because, you know, Donald Trump has changed his mind on a few things this week that he stuck by in the campaign. China being a currency manipulator, NATO, Middle East intervention. Those are things that are more typical of a conventional Republican president. So you can definitely tell that Steve Bannon has lost his influence a little bit in the White House. And what can you tell us about the latest with Carter Page and Lewandowski is the one who introduced Carter Page to the campaign? He's been given all these speeches this, or giving all these interviews this week having to do with his possible Russia, Russia connections. What What is the status of the Carter Page situation? Yeah, the Daily Caller actually broke that story yesterday. Our reporter, Chuck Ross, is the one who said that Corey Lewandowski was the Trump official who introduced Carter Page to the campaign's policy director. That wasn't something that was known beforehand. And you're right. Carter Page has slowly but surely been making a lot of appearances lately. Same with Corey Lewandowski, and even Roger Stone has been doing the interview rounds this week. So it is interesting. These are people that a lot of people forgot even worked on the campaign because it was so long ago. And Donald Trump went through other campaign managers. Uh, but it definitely has become a big source of intrigue. Yeah. Does anyone even know? Did anyone even know who Carter Page was until his name came up in the context of these Russia-Trump counterintelligence investigation pieces? I-, I had never heard of this guy. I follow the election pretty closely. No, that's definitely true. I think a lot of people just picked it up because, you know, everyone's looking at Paul Manafort right now. And if he had ties to Russia and what the depth of those ties were— and that's how Carter Page's name has come up in all of this. Hmm. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Anything else that you're working on or anything else that you think everybody should be paying attention to in the days, uh, in the coming days for the White House? I never pretend to predict what's going to happen in this White House. Yeah. Well, what's it like down there these days, by the way? What's the vibe, Caitlin? Bring, bring, us, into, bring us into the West Wing a little bit. It definitely was a little tense in the briefing room this week. As you know, there was the whole Hitler incident with John Spicer telling reporters that Assad, you know, was worse than Adolf Hitler was, and he apologized for that. But of course, people are harping on his comment, even though he apologized three or four times on CNN to Greta Van Susteren, multiple times. But so it's definitely become a little bit awkward in the briefing room this week. All right. We'll see what happens next week. Caitlin, uh, keep up the good work. Please come back and uh, tell us more about what's going on down there in D.C. Caitlin Collins, everybody, is the Daily Caller's White House reporter. She is at Caitlin Collins on Twitter. Caitlin, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in. Have a a good weekend. Thanks, Buck. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, too. Uh, Team, phone lines are open. 844-900-2825. We'll be back right after the break. All right, Team Buck, it's Friday, so we're going to start talking about just some interesting stuff. We're not going to be 
wedded to the news cycle for the day, although you can ask any news questions or talk about anything you want. Obviously, Action Movie Quote Friday is in effect. Your calls are flying in on that one. I appreciate it. One uh, one tweet that I thought was worth mentioning to you is this guy, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, who is at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, tweeted out, stop being weird about the 11-ton Moab. For some perspective, here's a B-52 starting to drop 81,000-pound bombs, which would be 81,000 pounds of ordnance on a target. So, yeah, everyone needs to... Because people are saying, oh, it's like a war crime to use a Moab. No, it's just a big bomb, everybody, as you know, but... The leftist uh, progressive types are being weird about it. All right, lots of action movie quotes. Brian in Massachusetts, what do you got? Hey, Buck, I got an easy one for you. Are you ready? Oh, thank. I'll take an easy one, sure. <laughs> Pop quiz, hot shot. Uh, a speed, Dennis Hopper, when he has taken <laughs> not Keanu Reeves, but his partner, who I believe, no, it's not Bill Pullman, it's a guy who looks like Bill Pullman, hostage. Um, great. Uh, by the way, speed is a very watchable but completely absurd movie, but very watchable. Yeah, you know, I I thought, you know, that would be a, a good one as a, as an intro. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. There yeah, we go. Great. All right. Anything else in your mind, Brian? Yeah. Shields high. Shields high, buddy. Thank uh, you. No, that's about it for now, man. Rock and roll, dude. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Uh, Brent in New Mexico. What's up, Brent? Hey, bud. Shields high, man. Shields high. Hey, dude, I'm pretty close to the same age, and, I know I know a lot of action movie quotes, but I gotta give you credit on that Total Recall one, man. That was pretty clutch. Thank you, I appreciate that. There's I've, the the boys got some skills. What can I tell you? Yeah, it's pretty good. I got one for you, and I thought of you on the CIA front of it, but uh, what's the matter? The CIA got you pushing pushing too many pencils. I mean, that's Predator. That's Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, squaring off, both at their at the peak of their physical prowess, uh, an incredible scene. Predator is one of my, that's a top five action movie for me. So I've seen that one so many times, it's almost embarrassing. Maybe it is embarrassing, but it's an amazing movie. And the score is excellent, I should want the, the music in that, you know, there's some movies where the music, we just kind of, we just assume that it was, it was going to be awesome because we're so used to it. Predator is one of them. The Star Wars music, the original Star Wars was so good. You know, it really makes a big difference. The score matters. Oh, yeah. When I was young, I used to just scan the jungle all day long, and I always thought I saw the Predator in every scene when they just showed the jungle. I could swear I'd see the Predator every well, time. Well, it's, it's amazing, too. That technology has been emerging for a long time of using light refraction as a form of camouflage, and we haven't really fully gotten there yet, but they've been experimenting with it. And, you know, it's interesting. Also, if, if you ever go back and watch, the, there's a YouTube documentary that's not that long that has the making of the movie Predator, and they take you through... Uh, all these all these different parts of it. First of all, those guys were all very competitive with each other, all those actors. They're all like lifting weights offset to see who is, you know, the most the most jacked on film. And and also uh, the the initial suit was much more mechanical looking. They ended up going with this a, a sort of lizard like predator, but the uh, the suit was too heavy and when they were filming it would sink into the jungles. They had to throw out the original predator entirely and the one they ended up with was much cooler looking. Yeah, I heard that. I heard they had to reshoot like a ton of it. Yeah, they 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 did have to do some reshoots. Anyway, that's on. It's free on YouTube. You can check out the documentary. You know, uh, thank you for calling in, Brent Shields. Hi. Oh wait, there's something else, Brent. There was. A, I see something. There's something. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. What what else you got? Well, no, I was actually listening to your CNN news alerts, and it, it has Elizabeth Warren on there talking about how she wants to uh, meet with the generals about uh, why they use this bomb. 
and why the timing of this bomb. And I just thought that was. Well, we, we've got we've got I, some Warren audio for you. You ask for ask and ye shall receive, my friend. Sixty five. Go. Uh, we're all trying to understand what is the strategy. If we can't what figure out strategy? what it means, it's sort of hard to make that a message. One of the things we want to know is what was the impact on civilians. I think it's it's powerfully important. You know, you go back to uh, General McChrystal talking about. Uh, the importance of knowing who gets killed in these attacks because that's the real question about our future safety. Who's going to be out there fighting us in the future? No, no. This this was on a cave complex in the middle of nowhere that was being used by the Islamic State. Uh, I, I, I do not think that this is a, a civilian casualty likely uh, strike. I think it's also interesting that she obviously subscribes to that theory that by fighting terrorists, we create more terrorists, which if, if one if one believes that, we should just surrender right away because everything everything we do creates more terrorists. Uh, you know, saying that we don't want... Uh, you know, we, we, are you there? Or am I talking to myself, friend? No, no. Oh, I'm there just... you are. All right. I, I, I didn't know if you were still still in on this. Anyway, so yeah, Elizabeth Warren, you were saying. <laughs> go ahead. Well, no, who is she? I mean, other than the fact that she's a direct descendant of true Native American warriors, what what does she know? You know what I'm saying? I the mean, left loves her. I mean, she she gets so much credit from progressives, and she's the she's like the female Bernie Sanders. Hey, what do you mean? I mean, you know, but I'm just saying. She's like a female Bernie Sanders situation in terms of her politics, and I don't know. I, I find her to be, a, to be Hillary in so many ways, actually. Just Hillary with a little bit more of a uh, of a progressivism instead of a uh, a, a a grasping cronyist uh, sort of personal mercantilist approach to everything, uh, but yeah, that's what I see. No. Shields high, Brent. Thank you for calling in, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you, Amber in Washington. You are on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome. Hi, Buck Shields high. Shields high. Okay, I have a movie quote for you. All right, let's see what you got. All right, I apologize if this has been done. I try and listen to your podcast, so I don't know if it's already been done, but <laughs> okay. still a good one. That's okay. Um, all right, the line is, red bag, the red bag, stop right there. I mean, that's a pretty tough line to give me. Uh... Is it? Sorry, maybe it's just me that it just... No, 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 tell me the movie. First of all, hit the... Hit the and, yeah, I know, I'm the worst. <laughs> what, 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 what's the... No, no, it's uh, Born Identity. Okay, I mean, That's definitely an action. No, right? definitely an action movie. You're okay. you're well within the guidelines here, and as a okay. as a line, it's that's that's okay. I, I'm going to give it to you. I, I think you I think you snuck one in here, and I get one on the on the lost board. That's all right. You know, you you took the master down, uh, but he'll be back. Hey, well, three yeah, for, three and one. I'm three and one. I got a seven, I've got a seventy five percent victory ratio today, but we'll see what That's we'll see. That's right. What you're doing good. Thanks, Amber. Shields High, right, thank bye. you so much for calling in. Have Thanks. a great have a great weekend. Happy Thanks, Easter bye. to you and your family. Uh yeah, Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren. Hmm. Elizabeth Warren. I don't know. Um by the way, uh I see here Susan Sarandon says that she was harassed for play play this. What is this clip seventy thing? You supported Bernie Sanders? Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is on the view, okay. Then you hey, it's for the a view. A sign in the in the general election, so you know, and you took a lot of heat for that because a lot people of heat. say, "Oh, the third party, really? Wow, you really did." Oh, the Hillary people. Are you happy now? <laughs> Actually, I think it's I happened to walk past Susan Sarandon on the street a few days ago in New York City, so it's kind of funny that here I am on radio talking about it. 
Um, one thing we New Yorkers pride ourselves on is when we see people, uh, people that are, are whatever, I guess you'd call them famous when you see celebrities, you just, you pay less attention to them than you would like a, just an, an everyday person on the street because who cares? Um, unless you see Bernie Sanders, cause that was kind of fun and exciting. I already told you about that one, but it was Bernie Sanders. But you know, you notice, uh, Joy Behar, she's like the Hillary supporters were so mean to you. And, uh. Yeah, I guess I guess some of the Hillary supporters probably were mean. It was it was a nasty primary all around. It really was on both sides. Um, that's a random thing. Had nothing to do with anything. I just that's the first view clip I feel like I've played on the show maybe ever. Uh, all right, we're gonna talk about uh, some funny progressive stuff coming up here. I might get into not just the Wellesley op-ed and free speech, uh, which you'll want to hear about, but also women's colleges. What's it like to go roam around as a man? I'll tell you. Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Man, CNN and others are really pushing this North Korea vows merciless response if provoked line. North Korea is always vowing that. North Korea says the craziest crap on the planet all the time. Why is everyone? I, I really think they're just they're they're hyping this thing up now. Okay, yeah. So there's some stuff going on, but yeah, I don't I don't believe it. Uh, well, it's not that I don't believe. It. I just think that they're they're running with this because ooh, scary headline. Yeah, let's talk about some other stuff. John in California on the iHeart app. What's up, sir? Hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. How are you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? Doing great, doing great. Hey, I wanted to get back to you, and you had that interview with the um, author of Silence You the other day, and that was really interesting because uh, he's been making the rounds all over the place with a lot of your colleagues, and, you know, I guess contemporaries, and you're the only one who got something really unique out of them to where it, it seems like the point was not about the campus crazies, but you pushed them a little, a little, like a little far, and it became – well, the campus crazies are crazy, but here's what you really have to worry about. It's the quote-unquote alt-right. I thought that was so interesting, and you're the only one I've heard that got that out of them. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I do have some experience in, in interrogation and, and intelligence right. collection, so there's that. Uh, but also, I, I will say that the moment that I said that, that Brown is a commie factory, and I could tell he was kind of like, uh, excuse, you know, he, he, he wasn't yeah. a, anybody on the right who knows anything about Brown University. I and mean, I, I could sit here and go over some stories that I mean, Brown is among the most progressive leftist schools uh, certainly well-known progressive leftist schools in the country. So I knew there was a problem already with that. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean Brown is not super liberal, dude? Like, come on. What are you going to tell me next? That, you know, o- Oberlin, Oberlin is is churning out constitutional you know, Republicans and, uh, you know, Wesleyan has gotten rid of the naked dorm? I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I yeah. agree. No, but, but, you know, I, I thought it was very interesting because this is – among all of the fallacious arguments that you come across when dealing with things on either the culture wars level or even on international relations, um, I'll give you the example. You know, when you talk, when I talk about Islamism and radical Islam, people will just they think they're really smart when they say, "Well, you know, there are there are, there are, Christ, there are Christian terrorists too." You know, look at like <laughs> uh, you know. You know, like the Oklahoma City bomber. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, that was uh, decades ago. So start there. So, so yep. you're reaching a little far back for your your prototypical Christian terrorist. He wasn't a Christian, whole separate discussion. He just happened to be a white guy from America, which everyone assumes means that he's a believing Christian, I guess, in the liberal media. Uh, or, or they'll say, oh, you know, what about uh, what about hilltop settlers in uh, in Israel? And it's just, 
you know, the the false equivalency game is one of the most maddening arguments because it's so obviously intellectually dishonest, but it's a way that people comfort themselves in not having to deal with the flaws in in the argument that they want to push, uh, or or in the defense that they want to make. And you, you, that's where we went with this guy. All of a sudden, he's telling me that the alt right does this too, and I'm like, well, we're talking about college right. campuses and shutting down speech. And you're you're telling me that that doesn't happen on campus, but it would happen. But you have no evidence of that. And and by yep. the way, I, I would right. offer that that doesn't happen on campus because uh, when campuses were considerably more conservative, I mean, let, let me say this to you, John. You know, there was a war memorial at Amherst College, and I knew that there were students who were like, "Oh, we have a war memorial on campus." And you, know, you go to some of these schools, uh, some of these IVs and their equivalents in the Northeast. And there are a lot of people that signed up that signed up for World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. And the student body is always kind of, you know, oh, we had all these people you know, that were signing up to serve their country. It's like, yeah. Now, you juxtapose that with Harvard and others kicking ROTC off campus decades ago. Right. I mean, I these schools had a very different ethos. I can share another story with you about um, a local UC campus here. Yeah, go for it, man. We're, it's Friday. We're hanging out. What do you got? Hey, let's just call it UCLA. Um, um, you know, they've had they kept their ROTC program. It's still there. I, I was just there about uh, a couple months ago, and I noticed that it's in the same office as when I went there. And they started to move. You know, a lot of the other, I guess you can call it more radical organizations in the same building around them. So if you walk in the building on the outside, you see the ROT stuff in the window and you look at all the other windows around it. It's almost like they're being surrounded by whatever crazy cause with ROTC stuck in the middle, almost under siege. I thought that was very interesting. What are some of the, what are some of the other causes we're talking about here? Oh, geez. You know, you know um, a Palestinian cause. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, the Raza, that type of thing. Kind of, you know, the usual suspects here at, the, at a UC campus. Yeah. I mean, but, there were these at, at, on Amherst campus. Uh, and John, shield time. And thank you so much for the call. Appreciate it. Yep. Um, and uh, wait, did, did John have an action movie quote too? Did I skip him on the action I, movie quote? Oh, you do, John. All right. Sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to cut you off. What's your action movie quote? Yeah, no problem. Okay. Here you go. It's, uh, it's an 80s thing. I think it's right down the middle of the plate for you. So, you ready? Oh, man, I'm ready. I was born ready. Okay. It's a go. Take him down. Uh, I don't know. Is it, is it uh, in the line of fire? No, I don't know. What is that? No, no. It's it's Lee Marvin and Delta Force. Ah, that's, that's, that <laughs> is down the middle of the plate, and you, you got me on that one. I, I, is that the one where Chuck Norris is rocking the... Uh, the jean jacket without the sleeves and the double the double mini Uzi is that Delta? It's Delta yeah. Force, right? Yes, that's what they have to go to Lebanon to free up. Money. Yeah, I I have I have to say I have yet to see uh, anybody show up for for possible combat in a in a no sleeve <laughs> jean shirt with double Uzis that have I I think he had like leather holsters that were attached to the Uzis too. I mean it was really it was quite a quite a setup he had. But yeah, yeah Delta Force, and yeah. and also a lot a lot of dudes rolling around on uh, on motorcycles firing automatic weapons, which is which is pretty tough. Got it. It? You got it right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. All right, John, thank you very much. Shields high. Right, I, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, man, it's yeah with with that guy from I didn't meet. Uh, by the way, I, I tried. To, I wasn't trying to be uh, unfair or 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 belligerent with our guest from from Silence You. But I just couldn't help it. All, all of a sudden, here we are. We're trying to fight against, well, at least that's how I see it, fight against this totalitarian impulse on campuses where people uh, think that they have a right 
to tell others what they can and cannot say in the realm of policy, never mind in the realm of personal discussion and, uh, you know, things that are, are more, um, I, th- I think that would be understandable to take more personally, but we're talking about actual policy discussion and they, they don't, they don't want to hear it. Speaking of that, I, I think this is a good place to uh, trans. Oh, wait, no, I, I'm, I'm going to transition. But before I transition, he mentioned the various protest groups. There was, uh, there were a number of ladies who were, who were, I don't know if they were grandmothers, but I think people just call, refer to them as the grannies, who were, you know, uh, up in years, distinguished ladies, uh, up in years. And they would just hang out in the town, on the town green at Amherst College, where I went to school. And they, what I always thought was interesting was that it would, they would have, there were only a few of them, like four or five. And they would have signs. For different causes, but it wasn't even one cause because that wasn't a. So it was like you'd have one standing there, like you know, free free Palestine, and you'd have another one over there who was like, no nuclear weapons, and you have another one who was all uh, free free you know free Mumia. That was actually one of the the, the free Mumia was one of the issues I remember. And I was like Mumia Abu Jamal. That's wow. That's I would not have expected uh, that. That's going to be right next to the uh, no nuclear weapons sign. But sure enough, sure enough, there it was. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of that, uh, the, the call and it would change, right? The causes would change and they would hang out in the town green. Oh my, some of those protests, you know, I'd see some hippies out there. I'd, I'd smell the, the scented, what is it? Uh, the patchouli and other scented oils, you know, they would hang out in the town green and, and, and substances would be in the process of being smoked as well. You could smell that as you'd walk by. Uh, and sometimes it was all fun. And sometimes it was great because it meant that they wanted to sell, you know, baskets that they had woven or glassware or sell you some uh, some wonderful baked goods. Not with any funny stuff in there, just baked goods, everybody. All right. None of that, none of that for me. Um, but there also sometimes you'd show up and the hippies would be there and they were protesting something. Uh, and the, the protests around Amherst got got to be pretty acrimonious over time, especially after 9-11, it all changed. Before 9-11, it was all kind of PCU, which is a movie I recommend for you to watch. It was all kind of fun and games. And then after 9-11, it was, it, it, it turned into a whole different thing. And I, I think I mentioned to you, there was a flat, I was at a, what was a community um, healing service of sorts. I don't even know what they call it, but people came together for members of the Amherst community who had lost loved ones in 9-11, and there was a flag burning there. Kids showed up to burn flags at that. You had students getting up talking about their recently deceased loved ones, recently, like two weeks ago, and a whole bunch of students showed up, flags burning, uh, 9-11, and this was the stuff they were talking about. I, I was standing right there. This was all first person. This is written up in the Boston Globe, too. I'm sure if you went to the archives, you know, flag burning, Amherst College, 9-11, it would all come up. Think about the mentality, though. I mean, this is right after... Right after 9-11, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. Um, I have a lot of my friends uh, are obviously New Yorkers, too. I, I was talking to my family that day. There were, you know, jet fighters overhead, and, and no one knew what was going on. It was all such a—it was all so anxious and tragic and horrible. And within a couple of weeks of that, you have people that are burning flags. It was—oh, and burning flags, by the way, because— of American imperialism and uh, racism and the extermination of the Native Americans. That was one of the things. That was the sign they were holding up, you know, that 9-11 is no justification for the more extermination of non-white peoples around the world. That was what their whole their whole theme was. So uh, they were Hampshire students, though. They were, not Amsh- they were not actually Amherst College students. But they showed up at Amherst because if they did this at Hampshire, 
people wouldn't have paid as much attention because it's just not a this is going to be kind of offensive, but it's just not a particularly serious institution. And I don't think any of these institutions are, are all that serious these days, to be honest with you. They're really expensive credential programs that are mostly young adult babysitting and partying. I mean, that's what it is. Uh, so many of these places now, uh, people come out of them and, you know, what do you even study there? What, what's what's the purpose of all this? And uh, anyway, that's the conversation. Speaking of campus stuff, so um, I, and I, I, want, I wanted to get to this because it's... And this also ties into our discussion about Silence You. Uh, and here you go. Um, many, this is a, a Wellesley college. I know uh, Hillary Clinton went to Wellesley. Wellesley is a very well-known member of the Seven Sisters schools, which are the all-girls schools that changed a bit, changed quite a bit after schools in general, particularly the Ivies, the Ivy League schools, uh, went co-ed and uh, Amherst which is not Ivy League but which is people refer to it as a little Ivy but I find that to be kind of you know pretentious and who cares uh, they Amherst went co-ed and so then that changed the dynamic in, in that area but Wellesley is still an all-girls school I've known some people went to Wellesley it's, I'm sure it's it's a it's a fine place and uh, the Wellesley College paper editorial board so it wasn't just I'm assuming it wasn't just one person that there were numerous hands on this piece on this uh on this editorial um that various minds came together in it and it is a summation of so much of what is wrong on campus they pulled it down we found it though because it's amazing and i'm going to read to you from some some of its brilliant and amazing sections uh and we'll talk about this is uh, the campus stuff by the way i I always like to remind everyone of this If, if you're listening and whether you're 20 or 70, um, the, this is just a this is now the distillation because the faculty believes this stuff too. So what you see from the students is just a distillation of what the administrators and the faculty are being taught. And oh, by the way, the faculty, the administrators, in many cases, go on to prominent roles or have prominent roles uh, in government and and have prominent roles in the private sector too. They sit on the boards of companies. They're treated. They are celebrated as important cultural. Uh, and political figures. You know, you look at who goes to the top reaches of the government, national security, and other uh, aspects. A lot of them are professors in their in their off time. You know, when the administration changes over, you go to, sure, there are people that come out of the think tanks, but also some of them come out of these academic programs. So I, uh, we, we will get into this editorial. We'll have some fun with it. And then I'll tell you some stories about being at the, about the uh, women's colleges. Uh, being at the women's colleges because, man, that was some interesting. That was some interesting stuff, my friends. Got Nate in North Carolina on WJHL. What's up, Nate? Hey, Buck. How's it going? Good listening to you. Love you on Rush Limbaugh's show, too. But uh, Thank you, sir. Basically, what I wanted to talk about is uh, I think our foreign policy is fundamentally wrong. And Trump is wrong in that I think we need a, a stronger NATO, not a weaker one. And we need to take the $25 billion a year that we and all our NATO allies give to the U.N. to basically a bunch of thug, corrupt dictators, and we need to huddle up amongst ourselves. And when somebody wants a loan, we give it to them under our conditions. When somebody talks trash, we make our fast response teams and we – we eliminate them that way. But the U.N. is pretty much the source of the most corrupt 
part of the world. And if we and and then and that's then look at the economic possibilities of all that. Also, is just trading between our partners. And then eventually, Russia and China, they're also going to say, "Hey, we want to play with you guys." So they'll they'll kind of. But to be to be fair, Nate hasn't hasn't Trump said uh, as of this week that NATO is no longer obsolete. I believe that's the direct quote, and that he understands the need for NATO, and he's looking forward to NATO taking a bigger role in fighting against Islamic uh, terrorism. Yeah, but you know that NATO has its flaws and its problems, and the problem is we're wasting all that money on the UN. We need to take every dime out of there and kick their thug brothers out of New York City and send them home. I got to see. I don't, I don't know how much money. I don't know how much money we give to the UN. I'm sure it's a, a, a substantial portion of the UN's. But we also, of course, give them. I don't know why it has to be. This is a whole separate thing. I don't know why the UN headquarters has to be in in, in New York City. This is like the most dense place in the country in terms of population. And when the UN General Assembly happens, this place is like uh, you know, it's like an armed camp. You can't get anywhere. So you know why, why they should. You know, the U.N. should be in, like, I don't know, pick a, pick a city that could use the business and, and has plenty of space and parking space. It's not Zimbabwe. New York. Zimbabwe. How's that? How about Zimbabwe? Hey, but we, the United States, we give them about $6 billion a year. And that and now Obama jacked it up to about $9 billion. And that's what we need to do is take every dime and just huddle up. And that means, and that means Turkey also. And we need to put our strategies together and and eventually they'll all come to us begging for that money and if egypt wants to shut down the suez canal we tell them i dare you whoa all right nate is not is not peace through strength he's just strength through strength Rawr. all right nate thank well, you for coming i was kidding i was kidding nate but th- thank you for calling in brother i appreciate it thank you very much um what was i uh I gonna say, um, I I wanted to get into ah uh, yeah okay the well the well the Wellesley let's get into the wells now but it's like I got a minute or two okay I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I'll get into the Wellesley thing here so um Wellesley College uh, I'm gonna read you some of this this is the editorial I'll get, I'm not gonna read the whole thing I'll read some pieces of it and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it because so, not only is this an example of the mentality that is so pervasive now. On the left, across the board, not just on campuses. In, and this is true in the in major newsrooms. It's true all over the place. There's certain things you're just not allowed to say. Okay, here's the editorial, which they have pulled from general web access because they're just trying to stop what I'm sure are the mountains of mockery. These are college students. They're putting it out there for everyone to read, and this is what happens. All right, here we go. Many members of our community, including students, alumni, and faculty, have criticized the Wellesley community for becoming an environment where free speech is not allowed or is a violated right. Many outside sources have painted us as a bunch of hothouse flowers who cannot exist in the real world. However, we fundamentally disagree with that characterization, and we disagree with the idea that free speech is infringed upon at Wellesley. Rather, our Wellesley community will not stand for hate speech and will call it out when possible. Um, Wellesley students are generally correct, of course, in their attempts to differentiate what is viable discourse from what is just hate speech. Wellesley is certainly not a place for racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, or any other type of discriminatory speech. 
Shutting down rhetoric that undermines the existence and rights of others is not a violation of free speech. It is hate speech. The founding fathers, oh, she invoked the founding fathers, put free speech in the Constitution as a way to protect the disenfranchised and to protect individual citizens from the power of government. Okay. The spirit of free speech is to protect the suppressed, not to protect a free-for-all where anything is acceptable, no matter how hateful and damaging. Here it seems they're making the case, we'll get back into this, but that the speech of the majority can't be allowed if it is offensive to the minority. Uh-uh. That's not how it works. We're going to give you a little constitutional lesson for Wellesley. We come right back. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Oh, let's get back to this stuff at Wellesley College for Women. Isn't it interesting, though, if it's a college for women, what about those who are transitioning but have not yet transitioned? I know that Smith College, another women's college, when I was a student at Amherst, removed any gender-specific pronouns from the Constitution, the student constitution, because they didn't want to be discriminatory, but it is a school only for women. The school that did not want to be discriminatory in the case of Smith College, um, where uh, I spent a fair amount of time, I can let you know, uh, when I was a college student, um, the school would make males who came from other schools, namely Amherst, UMass Amherst, uh, Amherst College, and uh, you know others from the area, we would have to show ID and be on a list and be checked in by security in the dorms, as, as though we were visiting a, a a penal colony. But we were the you know, but we were the problem, right? I mean, it was they were trying to keep us out. We were the the males, the X, uh, the XY chromosome crowd were the riffraff. I remember that very distinctly. Um, and yet they removed gender from the Constitution. So they're, they're trying to figure all this stuff out. Lovely campus, by the way. And Northampton is a great little town up in Massachusetts with really good food for a town of that size, I must say. Um, so uh, let's now get back into this editorial at Wellesley. So they pulled it down, which is never good because th- then you're just— you're just uh, admitting to everybody that you can't take the heat. They should have just left it up because we would have gotten tired of it within a day or two. And uh, by the way, I, I have no problem really laying into this as well because I don't think there was any name attached to it. This was for the editorial board, so it's 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 a collective, uh, it's a collective feminist insanity going on here. It's not a it's not one person. It's a group of them. So. But that also keep in mind should mean you would think that the writing is of a higher quality. Wellesley is. By reputation, an excellent school. If any of you listening went to Wellesley, apologies for for ripping on your your school a little bit, but it happens. I rip on my own school too. I rip on all these schools, all these places. Let me say right now, all these uh, four year degree, four year undergrad programs are are overpriced pretty much, and especially depending on what you spend your time there doing and studying, um, they've become this rite of passage more than. And people take out these huge loans and all the rest of it. Okay. Back to back to Wellesley here for a second. Uh, so 
we quote, we have all said prob we have all said problematic claims. Okay. The origins of which were ingrained in us by our discriminatory and biased society. Luckily, most of us have been taught by our peers and mentors at Wellesley in a productive way. Aww. While it is expected that these lessons will be difficult and often personal, holding difficult conversations for the sake of educating is very different from shaming on the basis of ignorance. Mm, okay, ish, I guess. Uh, that being said, th this is where things get really, oh no, wait, sorry. That being said, if people are given the resources to learn and either continue to speak hate speech, uh, okay, or refuse to adapt their beliefs, then hostility may be warranted. Oh, look at that. So you, you should be hostile, to, you should be hostile toward people. If you don't like what they're saying, that's what they're saying here. That that is the bottom line of this piece. That is the bottom line up front. Um, there there is a a hostility here that we should all be uh, able to understand where this comes from. If they don't if they don't like speech, okay. Um, and, oh, and then it goes on. This is this is the best line. Hat tip Jonah Goldberg for uh, pointing pointing this out because I'm I am asking you right now. You can tell me what you think about this. It is important to note, this is a quote, it is important to note that our preference for education over beration regards students who may not have been given the chance to learn. It is important to note that our preference for education over beration regards students who may not have been given the chance to learn. I, 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 I don't, what? I don't, under, I don't even know what that means. Not because I'm incapable of understanding, but because what does that mean? Um, and then it goes on. Rather, we are not referring to those who have already had the incentive to learn and should have taken the opportunities to do so. Paid professional lecturers and politicians are among those who should know better. Um, it is important that our preference for education over beration regards students. Oh, okay. So I think what they're trying to say there is some students would not have been have given the opportunity to know that their ideas are unacceptable before they got to college, which, wow, okay. Um, I want to know how they think they're supposed to parse that out. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that means that white males, you are you do not get any benefit of the doubt at all. You you are going to be in trouble. But like foreign students, probably they would they would allow, I guess, a pass. Um, but the uh, the facility with writing in the English language in this piece is pretty minimal. Um, it, it, this is, and, and I've there are plenty of student papers that have uh, writers that are writing from that are that are good. Um, but yeah, they. Oh, and then at the bottom it says, "We at the Wellesley News are not interested in any type of tone policing, written without irony or sense of humor." Uh, th these these kids. And they're, they're adults. I, sh I don't like the, these kids things because if you're 18, you're an adult. Okay. These young adults, they are being told a lot of stuff that is not just untrue, but is very damaging because they will take it with them out into the broader, uh, broader world. And they will take it out and decide that the totalitarian impulses that were met with applause on these campuses uh, should then be applied in the rest of life and that in the rest of their, their lives. That's really troubling. Um, what I was just talking to a, 
a friend recently about how one of the, the things that does separate us from other countries is you, within pretty well-established limits here when it comes to government interference, although there's still there's debate on that, and I think the government actually these days limits more speech than it should, but you can get away with saying a lot here without the government coming after you, the private sector punishing you and, and people shaming you and everything. Well, that's that's a, that's also a worthwhile part of the conversation, but at least the government will generally let you get away with a, a lot compared to other countries, right? I mean, we're better on this than Canada, than Europe, certainly than any Muslim country. Um, you know, free speech is better here than it is in a lot of, you know, then you get into some other places like Thailand, you can't insult the royal family. And there's, they're for real about that. You know, you insult the king and you go to prison. Like, so there's, there are countries where free speech is, is non-existent. Um, and uh, it is one of the best parts of this country. And that we are letting this slip away from us without more of a fight is, is deeply troubling to me. It's really bothersome. And I, I do think that there's this needs to be mocked. It really does. This is a, a the only way to make the point, I think, is to mock people who believe that they have this right to decide what is and is not acceptable speech. It's also why I'm consistent on this. I don't believe in hate crime legislation. I don't believe in hate speech laws. I don't I don't think any of that is a good idea. I don't think any of that is a good idea because I knew exactly what would happen. And this is where we are now, where you have favored and disfavored groups and you have the a really Marxist approach to policing, not just speech, but to policing in general as a matter of criminal law. And it means that the law does not apply equally to all people. And that's that's very discouraging and very damaging. On to uh, a, a, a uh, college story that I have here. So I, I remembered uh, spending time at, at Smith. I didn't really spend much time at Mount Holyoke. So these are similar in... In concept and in the general approach of the student body, I think, to Wellesley. They're all seven sister schools. The other ones are, let me see if I can do this, Wellesley, Bryn Mawr, Holyoke, Smith. Uh, what's the one at uh, Columbia? I don't remember the name of it. And then I think is Rat- Ratcliffe, was that? And then Harvard? I don't know. I'm getting, I'm close. Barnard, yeah, Barnard. Anyway, I'm pretty close. So those are the women's, those are the seven sister schools, the women's colleges. And... Um, I remembered I, I uh, spoke to um, my little sister when she was looking at schools and she was looking at colleges. And I had told her about my experiences going to these different places. And I think she assumed, understandably, because I am conservative, that maybe I was exaggerating and uh, and that this was something that she, that she needed to see for herself. So she went and visited in an accepted students weekend at Smith. And just relayed some, just relayed some memories to me that I from from the campus that I remembered, of uh, of uh, I think the the exhibit was called uh, Sexhibition, where they would have women who would take a photo. These are mostly for freshmen, I think, but it's it's to overcome the sexualization of females in society by taking naked photos of students. Uh, and then, you know, this is by choice, obviously, uh, and then posting them around. The, but I, but I mean, but I mean, I mean, naked, like naked, not just, you know, not just the, the, the top half. I, I mean, my understanding is that they go fully, fully sans clothing. Uh, and that was that left an impression. I remember she said, you know, is that a thing? Oh, yeah, they, that's a that's that's a thing that I've I've heard about there for sure. 
Um, and I also remembered seeing when I was there this this not so subtle. I thought it was very clearly anti male propaganda that existed. Uh, I remember being in the. Of, of course, they don't have um, gender segregated restrooms. So think about that for a second too. Like you just use the bathroom and anywhere you know. So you're just going to the bathroom and there's other people in the bathroom who are ladies and you're in there and you know there's stalls. But uh, because there were students who were even when when, uh, when I was there, there were students who were transitioning. That was a thing that was going on. Um, and there was no, I do not think there was a student who was male who attended the all-female school, but there were definitely female students who believed they were in the process of transitioning to male. That was, that, that existed there. Um, that was a situation that, that we had. Uh, but I remember seeing these posters up on the wall that were like, do you really want to go to, and I was like, hey girls, do you really want to go over to Amherst? Why not stay here with you, you know, stay here with your 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 fellow smithies and like have some cookies and drink some tea and now look i'm all for having some cookies and drinking some tea if i have an addiction in life it is probably to drinking whole milk and eating dark chocolate i just those are two things that's my thing i i i've been in foreign countries in 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 dodgy places and uh you know dangerous situations and i'm like you know as long as i can get some access somewhere to a little bit of even if it's that you know that long long shelf milk that you can get in you know, those of you who've been to third world countries know what i'm talking about it comes in like the carton it's not refrigerated until you open it and, and get some whatever you can get dark chocolate anywhere um then i'm pretty much good to go you know then i've got all the all the t- for some guys that i knew out there and the, you know when we get out in the field it was all about Having you know some some Johnny Walker or having I don't know whatever having season one of of Entourage and a DVD player uh, for me it was whole milk and dark chocolate I just I just look that's my that's my comfort zone that's my that's my safe space whole milk and dark chocolate but uh, at Smith they had these these things up and I told you you had to sign in like you were a convict that were, but you were a convict who was doing the visiting you know are, are you on the list let me see your id and they always said it was to the pr- protect the students i'm like you realize at amherst we're having parties where people are running around half naked like 10 drinks in all over the place and like no one has been murdered yet like it's it's okay you know this isn't uh i'm not saying that's the way to spend your college years i'm also not saying it's not the way to spend your college years but as a safety precaution it it seemed very dubious to me but so yeah but see you know, why don't you drink some tea i'm all for having tea and and cookies and hanging out and especially as i get a little older here now the the staying out super late thing and uh, all that is you know i'm now like an old i'm a a 35 year old but i'm really like in mentally a um a 50 58 year old i'd guess something like that um that's what I would. That's where I'd put myself. Fifty-eight, maybe sixty. Uh, but yeah, a lot of a lot of anti-male propaganda at at the school. Because I always felt like that's what they were saying is don't go hang out with the guys. That's really what it, that's really what it was. There was a lot, of, and I'm trying to remember some of the other little posters they put up. All right, I I, I got to go into a break. I've run long on this. I'll be right back. A uh, team BuckSexton.com is up and going. It is in full effect. You can check it out. I'll be posting there. Uh, next week, uh, plenty to post there every day. Uh, myself, as well as things from the show, will be posting clips, and you can uh, download the podcast there. Also, if you're listening now, please do subscribe to the podcast. Really appreciate that. You can go on iTunes, uh, type in Buck Sexton with America Now, and click subscribe. And yeah, that would that would be like great. That would be great. Thank you so much. Uh, or you can listen on the iHeart app, of course. You can play it on demand there as well. 
Uh, I'm trying to think of other like fun. Oh, uh, at some point, and now this is kind of unfair because I'm telling you something and I won't be able to get, maybe next Friday, uh, I'll have to remind myself and I'll tell you about the time when my, my freshman college dorm, and I know some of you are probably like Buck with all the college stories. Oh, come on. They're fun. It's Friday. Uh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of serious policy. I promise you first thing on, uh, on Monday, on Monday's show. Um, but my, my dorm was going to throw a party, but this all ties into what we talk about too, the campus politics and all this craziness. And that guy from silence, you came on, who's like, he's like, well, the alt-right, I'm like, no, 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 we're not, we're not talking about the alt-right now. That's, that's the, no, 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 that's not. Unless you got some alt right on campus for me, we're just not going to go there. That's not that's that's that, that is a diversion. That's not even a digression. That is a non sequitur to the conversation. Oh, what's up, SAT words? So uh, I'll tell you about the time that my dorm was going to throw a party, and it was voted on by the by the members of the dorm. And I lived in a very diverse dorm, by the way. Um, it, it was we we were a very it was a very diverse class. We were. 43 or 44% minority in my class of 400 or so. Um, I had people from all over the world living on my floor uh, as well as in the dorm. And they voted to throw a south of the border party, which I'm thinking, this is great. We're going to be drinking tequila and we get to do all, you know, all the... All the fun stuff that one would be thinking, margaritas, chips and guac, chips and salsa, you know, everybody likes these things. But then in the in the advertising of the party phase and in the choice of what was going to be the decor, we and and I did not have any personal stake in this or any personal decision making in that aspect of it. I was. I may or may not have been in charge of trying to procure uh, chips and salsa. That was what I, that was my role in this. I was just going to be the food guy. Let's go with that. Um, but they were they were trying to uh, get all that stuff going, and we ran afoul of the social justice warriors, and we were threatened with being picketed. We were threatened with the cops being called on the party because of alleged underage drinking that may have been occurring on a college campus. Uh, we may have had to sit down with diversity educators. We may have ha- we may have been threatened with going to diversity re-education in in the uh, classrooms um, unless we made some drastic adjustments to it. So I've given you a, a beginning of the story. I, I will maybe next Friday I will be able to finish it. How about that? Fridays we'll have fun story time. But the south of the border party that was that was good stuff. Uh, we did throw the party. And there was some very interesting stuff along the way. I'll tell you a bit about that. Those of you who haven't seen it, as I was saying before, PCU, great movie. Check it out sometime um, as we talk about all this madness on campus. Next week, I'm expecting a big week for the Trump administration. Donald is going to get it done. That's my prediction. We'll see how it all goes. More intrigue in the White House, international affairs, international relations. I think North Korea is going to cool down a bit. We'll see if I'm right about that. Let's hope so. As I said, please download the podcast. Go check out BuckSaxon.com. And also, please give me your email there so that I can include you when we start doing a newsletter for the Freedom Hut, the Freedom Hut Live. That's what it's going to be. Have a great weekend. Have a great Easter, everybody. Shields high.